Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And if you have one of those Bibles in the back of the pew, that's um, page 822, if that's quicker for you. And also, just know that you're welcome to take one of those. If you do not have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take one of those home with you today. So again, the scripture reading is from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adrian. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before we get in, just so it's not distracting, I want to show you this. It's kind of cool. It's a, little, uh, it's a little cast on my finger, just for fun. Uh, actually uh, fractured it playing basketball with some staff people. I was slam dunking on Neil Long, posterizing him. And uh, that's the way I remember it. That's the way I remember it. He might tell you a story about a reaching foul, hitting his elbow. I, I don't know. You can pick which story you want to believe. Uh, I've chosen my narrative, and I'm going to stick with it, uh, sticking with it. Uh, speaking of basketball, Rock Talk Jayhawk, just got to say it. Just got to say it. Hey, listen, even if you're not a KU fan, it's the only thing your bracket has going for you, because everything else has been ruined. See, everything else has been ruined, so we'll see what happens. Uh, we're not here to talk about basketball, nor my finger, uh, here to talk about Jesus. And, uh, and the passage we are looking at today is, is uh, a really strange but stunning and beautiful iconic uh, passage through which I think God wants to do some work to transform the way we think about what matters in life. Uh, the disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus uh, in the first century had a hard time understanding how this messianic king, this glorious one, could possibly be calling them to experience victory through a path that looked like a cross. 
And every subsequent generation has had a hard time with that as well. We as Christians in the 21st century have a hard time understanding that the call of Jesus to follow him is is not a call to kind of like our best life now. It's not a call to accumulate and gain influence and power in the world's economy or in the world's system or in the world's value kind of like uh, approach. It is to understand that true glory, true power, true life comes not through the way of escalation and elevation, but through the way of descent. It comes through self-giving love. It comes through servanthood. It comes through suffering. Uh, That the path to glory is a path that's marked by self-giving love, servant-heartedness, and suffering. And this is the way that I think Jesus is going to invite us into in this passage. And so we need help from the Holy Spirit because I I think the way that the kingdom works is so different than the way our culture works that we need a miracle. As Christians in this world, we need a miracle for God to help transform the way we think about what matters in life and what we ought to be giving our lives for. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do that miracle in our hearts today. Would you join me? Uh, Jesus, we desperately need you today uh, to understand your glory, your majesty, your transcendence, your beauty. And to understand that in the light of the cross is something that is so difficult uh, for us to get our minds around. We are so conditioned uh, to think in an upside-down way about the world, and we need your help to flip our conception on its head. I pray you would empower us to be the kind of people that would joyfully deny ourselves, kill our ego, lay down our agendas, lay down our kind of attempts to promote ourselves and elevate ourselves, that we would humble ourselves, that we would become servants, and that we would serve for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, and for the good of other people. Uh, But would you give us a taste of your glory today uh, to equip us for that, to prepare us for that, to give us eyes to see the kind of path you've called us to and the joy that's set before all those who will follow you faithfully, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following you. We need you, Jesus. Pour out your grace on us now. In Christ's name, amen. I I don't know if you've ever seen a movie or had an experience where, you know, there's a moment that some experience, something somebody says or something somebody does kind of like so disorients you and flips your world upside down. Uh, I I think of it as like a sixth sense moment. Remember that movie? Uh, this is going to be a spoiler, but for the record, you've had two decades, uh, more than two, 20 years to watch this movie, so deal with it. Um, but you know, at the end of the movie, uh, where you have that final moment where you like realize that the main character has been dead the whole time, pretty much, and you're like, whoa, you're like, wait, wait, do you remember the first time you saw it? You're like, some of you weren't alive. It was like 98 or something. Um, but like... Just the first time, you just like, it messed you up. It was just like, you're rethinking everything. You're going back to these scenes and you're thinking through it. Or like, you know, a little slightly more modern. And this one, I'm a little like, don't quite want to spoil as much. But you think about Harry Potter, you know, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say Snape. And, uh, you know, that last scene with Snape and you're just like, what? What? No, come on. What? It messes you up. Or any Christopher Nolan film ever, right? Every Christopher Nolan film. Just think, what's your favorite Christopher? At the end, you have this moment that you have to rethink the whole movie in light of, right? Uh, If you've had these experiences in real life, I I remember uh, one particular experience. I was like a junior or senior in college, and my best friend sat down with me and said, hey, I'm going to start dating your sister. And I was like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) 
we've been friends for like 10 years. How long have you been playing this game? Like, this is like, I had to rethink our whole friendship, like a decade of friendship. It took me a solid year to get my mind around that reality. And then it became awesome. Like my best friend became my brother-in-law. But it took me some, it was disorienting. It was disorienting. I literally revalued, I was like, when, how long? I don't understand. And uh, it was confusing. Uh, Those kinds of disorienting moments where you have this experience that just kind of flips your world upside down, makes you rethink life, makes you rethink what's been going on, what's happening. That's, That's kind of the scene that we're in right here. It's the moment we're in for the disciples of Jesus. Uh, In the first century, there's a lot of ideas about what a Messiah would be and would do. And as the story of Jesus has been making its way forward, these disciples that were invited into a relationship with Jesus as apprentices are kind of beginning to understand more and more clearly that he is indeed the Messiah that they've been waiting for forever. But they had a ton of kind of preset convictions and conceptions about what that would mean. And so we reached a point last week where Chris was preaching in Matthew chapter 16, where it finally became really clear, became clear. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this climactic confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is, you are the Messiah. You're God's appointed representative, his appointed king, the one who's representing the glory of God on earth, who's come to restore all things. And Jesus kind of unilaterally just says to them, yes. He owns it. He lets this be the kind of defining moment where his disciples for the first time get a really clear, straightforward answer. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the king that they've been waiting for. But he immediately follows that affirmation with a description of what that mission and what his ministry and what his life and his kingdom would look like that had no room in their conceptions of what the kingdom of God would be like. When the kingdom of God comes, what they expected is the Messiah to kind of build an army, start a revolution, begin momentum, drive out Romans, and restore Israel to its glory. And so when Jesus says, yes, and here's what that's going to mean, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over to the hands of the Jewish leaders and then the Romans, I will be crucified on the third day, I will arise again. When Peter says, no way, never, right? It's because everybody would have thought, no way, never. Because that's not what messiahs do. That is what failed messiahs do. It is what would-be messiahs do. And there are a number of those throughout the history of Israel, people that they thought, hey, this is going to be a messiah. This is going to be the one to come. And, uh, and they would come and they would kind of gather a little kind of revolutionary group. And eventually they get stamped out by the Romans and they'd be done. And you don't know their names because they died. They died. And when revolutionary leaders die, it's the end. Game over. It's done. Like imagine the kind of, if you learn about a revolutionary war, not through like the revolutionary war that established the new nation that we're a part of, but if you learned it as an, like, an attempted coup by a group of kind of these people from this, this colony, and uh, there were some people that tried to overthrow the British Empire, and they got stamped out. They sent their army, and then the British Empire sent more soldiers to kind of fortify their presence here and continued as a kind of a colony or a group of colonies uh, of the British Empire. You would never know about the name George Washington. And there would be no musical about Alexander Hamilton. And the world would be a worse place. It would be a worse, Lin-Manuel Miranda would have to think of something else to write music about, which he does often. Uh, he does, he does. Like, you wouldn't know about it, right? George Washington would maybe make it into, maybe make it into history books as an attempted revolutionary leader. Maybe. But just kind of like the historians that are studying, like, 
the history of the Americas would like learn about this attempted revolution, but it wouldn't matter because that's what happens when a revolutionary leader dies. It's done. It's done. So when Jesus says, yes, I'm the messianic king come to restore Israel to glory, and then he says, but I'm going to die, the no way never reply of Peter is understandable. Understandable. And yet Jesus sees Peter's reluctance to embrace the cross as the way to glory as fundamentally in opposition to his mission. Now that that's, puts them in a hard moment. What Jesus begins to unpack, and Chris unpacked this last week, is that it is not only Jesus' way to glory through the cross, what he's calling all of his followers when he's saying, follow me, the invitation to follow Jesus towards this glorious kingdom reality is to follow not just the way of his life, but the way of his life that's marked by the cross. It's a cruciform road to glory. The way to glory is through the cross, not just for Jesus, but for his followers. And so Jesus says to his followers, if anyone wants to come after me, they need to deny themselves, just like I'm denying myself. They need to take up their cross, just like I'm going to be taking up my cross. And they need to follow after me, because if they want to save their life, they're going to have to lose it. But if they're committed to hanging on to their life, if they're committed to kind of like holding on to all the things that they value in this world, in the systems of our world, in the value systems of our world, then they will indeed lose the life that they long for. Now, the disciples are kind of stuck in a position where they have to ask a question. Do I still want to follow him? Would you still want to follow Jesus if he said, what I'm calling you to is a road that's going to be marked by suffering? What I'm calling you to is a road that's going to be marked by self-denial. What I'm calling you to is a, is a road where you're going to have to let go of your ambitions to build this beautiful, glorious life for yourself where everybody thinks you're awesome, and you're going to have to humble yourself and become a servant of everybody else, emptying yourself day in, day out, laying down your life, denying your own kind of like personal ambitions for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. If that's what he called you to, would you still want to follow him? Because it is what he called you to. That's what he's called us to. It's not like a, the, the way of Jesus, which we call Christianity, the way of Christ, the way of Jesus, following him, was never intended to be pray a prayer at some point in your life and then go build your life the way everybody else is. It's a way of saying, I'm going to turn from building my life the way that I've been running and I'm going to start trusting in Jesus and following his way to life. And the way that Jesus has forged for us is a way to joy, a way to glory, a way to an eternal reality that is beautiful and beyond comparison, but that path is marked by suffering. What do you think his disciples? So we, we sit here today, and when we think of Christianity, uh, we have kind of, we just sang like three songs that talked about the cross. We sing about the cross. We wear cross necklaces and cross earrings. We put crosses on our churches. When people think today of Christianity, they think about it through the lens of the cross. You have to do something with it. When they were thinking about the Messianic movement, the Christian movement, or the way of the Christ, they would have never conceived of the cross. Never conceived of it. So how are these groups of followers going to stay faithful to Jesus and hang with Jesus prior to the cross and the resurrection when he's forging for them and framing for them a way of discipleship that is so contrary to anything they would have expected. This moment right here in Matthew 17 is a way that Jesus is preparing his disciples to understand exactly who he is, who it is who's calling them down this path, who it is that's inviting them to follow him, to follow him in this self-giving, self-denial, sacrificial way. And he calls them to it in, 
in a really stunning way. And so look with me. We're going to just walk through the passage. It is loaded with so many allusions to these different Old Testament scenes and Old Testament figures and passages and expectations. We couldn't possibly go through all of them, but I'm going to highlight a couple as we work our way through the passage, just saying, what's happening? What does this mean? And at the end, we're just going to draw attention to a fundamental paradox that we're supposed to kind of slowly, as we grow as followers of Christ, let kind of consume and reframe the way we think about life here in this world. And, uh, and so start with me. We're in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Uh, after six days is very precise. Uh, Matthew is, is rarely this precise in his kind of like chronological sequencing. So you always ask, why? Why after six days? Why not like, and then, or later, and it came to pass. Uh, why after six days? Two reasons. One is it's connecting you very directly in this kind of flow of reality to the season, to the moment that had just happened in chapter 16. In all three, what we call synoptic gospels, when we say synoptic gospels, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which share a ton of kind of stories and language and literature to put together their gospels. All three of them have framed those stories in different orders and sequencing, sequencing to fit their kind of theological and ministry agenda. But all three of those gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put the confession of Peter Jesus' kind of prediction of his impending death and resurrection and his call to his disciples to lay down their lives, deny themselves, and follow him, kind of all of them put that story right before the transfiguration because they go together. You cannot understand the significance of the transfiguration without understanding the significance of what has just transpired in this last section in chapter 16, where again, Peter confesses, you're the Christ. Jesus says, yes, I am. But the way of the Christ is to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Peter says, no way, never. Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Or Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you're going to have to follow me too. Right? How are they going to do that? Chapter 17. This is Jesus preparing them for that path. The other thing that's significant, and we'll pay attention to this a little more later, is uh, there are going to be so many allusions here to a moment in the Old Testament particularly Exodus 24, where a man named Moses, who was this appointed representative that God had called to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, out through the Passover, through the waters of the Red Sea, into the wilderness, where finally God appeared to the people on a mountain called Sinai. Moses came up that mountain, stood before the Lord with three close friends nearby. Moses experienced God speaking to him, giving him instruction for the way of the kingdom, setting a foundation for the way the kingdom of Israel would look. Moses came down from that mountain with his face glowing because he had been in the presence of God. All of those themes are kind of like latent and explicit all throughout this whole passage, every first century Jewish reader would have been reading in this story, oh, this is just like that Moses on Sinai moment, which is significant for the broader meaning. So here we go. Verse two. It says, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. All right, what's happening? I want you to imagine the scene. The, the mountain that they're in, there's a lot of different opinions. Most likely, it's about a 10,000 peak 
mountain, 10, uh, just under 10,000 feet. And so they've kind of gone on this journey. It's in a remote place, and they've made it up this mountain. You can see all of Galilee as you look south, and you can see this kind of broad expanse. You have Jesus and three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they're there, and while they're there in this moment, something spectacular happens. All of a sudden, the appearance of Jesus, the word we have in most of our translations is uh, transfigured. Uh, and we call it the transfiguration. The word is the same as the word transformed. His appearance is just changed, fundamentally changed. And the way that Matthew describes it and the way that John and James and Peter would have described it to the others is that his face was shining, bright like the sun. It was radiant. And everybody would have understood in that moment that this is a kind of revelation of the glory of Jesus but also a revelation that Jesus is one who lives and ministers as one who walks in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. Just like Moses spoke with God face to face, like Moses is there, Moses is given an image of God's glory, and he walks down the mountain, and his face is radiant, and it says the people of Israel couldn't even look at his face. He had to wear a veil over his face because he had been so transformed by being in the presence of God's glory. It was a transformative experience. To be in the presence of God's glory was transformative. And so when they see his face shining and then they see his clothes bright like white, all of these images are images of somebody who lives and has come from the heavenly realm. And so every time you see any kind of figure that's coming and their, their clothes shone bright like the sun or their clothes are bright white, it doesn't mean that's God. Uh, it does mean they're from the heavenly realm. They're from a different space. They're from a, a different realm of existence. There is a purity and a glory and, and a radiance that is, that is not something we experience in this world where true glory is often cloaked by kind of the, the, the veneer of brokenness that kind of covers all of reality. So here's this picture of Jesus in his glory. And Peter does what Peter does, uh, which is jump and start talking, which I resonate with. Uh, let me just say I, I resonate with it. I'm somebody who like you, I use too many words. I talk too much. I jump to conclusions fast. I'm quick to respond. Uh, I resonate so much with Peter, which is why I'm like so grateful for his presence in the Bible. I'm like, okay, God might still love me. He still loved Peter. Um, and, and you have this like moment where Peter's like, I've got an idea, like this thing we're going to do. And this is, it's good that we're here. He's like, this moment is good, right? right? Juxtapose this moment was six days ago. He's like, this one's a lot better. Like, you know, when you call me Satan, let's let that, <laughs> you know, this, this is good. This is good. I like this way, way better. And, uh, and he's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build, um, I could build a tent for you, obviously, first, you know, but Moses and Elijah, I'll build a tent for all three of you. And, and he's like beginning to plan. And it's like, I love that Matthew says this. Look, look at the passage. Look at verse five. He was still speaking when Matthew like, doesn't say, and then the Lord said, Matthew's like, God interrupted him. He's like, Peter, shush, you know, shh, shh. I'm doing something here and I want you to pay attention. I don't need you to respond. I don't need you to construct these little tabernacle tents. I don't need you to like make something. I just, I want to show you something. And I want you to understand something. And I need you, Peter, I need you followers of Jesus to listen. Because there's something you, you need to understand. If you're gonna follow Jesus on the road that he's gonna they lead you down, there's something you must understand. And so this voice speaks, verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. E even the, this little adjective, a bright 
cloud. It's like this isn't just like a storm cloud. This is an experience of God's glory. It is the way that was talked about with the pillar of cloud leading the people of Israel, the clouds hovering over Sinai. This is God's glory. A bright cloud appears and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now this statement from the Lord God Almighty coming out over Jesus, but specifically speaking to Peter, James, and John is a powerful statement about the identity of Jesus. I want you to again think where we are in the story. They've been following him. They're watching healings. They're hearing him teach with authority. They're watching him forgive sins and do things that like humans don't do. And they're beginning to think he must be the Messiah, but he's kind of cryptic and weird about the way he talks about it. He's like continually kind of confusing them and flipping their thinking and using puzzling stories. And, and you just don't, it's like, why is he being so ambiguous and cryptic? And finally, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Yes, I am. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to go down the way of the cross. Okay. Are we sure we want to do this? Now God speaks over Jesus to the disciples. This is him. This is my beloved son. This is my appointed representative. This is my anointed king. This is the Christ. This is the exact imprint of my glory. The one who represents my reign and my kingdom exactly as a representation, a perfect image of God on earth. This is him. And the way he's leading you, the way he's guiding, the ministry he's been doing, I'm so pleased. It is on point. It is on mark. When he says something about the cross, he's right. When he calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, he's right. His marching to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed, where he's going to be arrested, where he's going to be falsely accused, wrongfully condemned, brutally and and, and in a humiliating fashion executed, it's the way. I'm pleased with him. This is right. This is the way. This is the way that I've called my people to go. And in a world where they expected the kingdom to be about climbing, about power structures, and thinking it through the frameworks and the economies and the value system of our societies and the societies of this world, they expected glory to be achieved through elevation, promotion, victory over enemies. They never, ever would have anticipated that the way to glory being a way of servant-heartedness Humility, sacrificial love, and suffering and dying for your enemies. Never. And God is affirming, yes, this is my divine representative. This is the glory of God in human form. This one who's willing to lay down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. That's glory. That's glory. And I want you to listen to him. Now that phrase, listen to him, uh, is in one sense very simple. Just listen to him. And so it's a good question to ask. How, how are you doing at listening to Jesus? What do you mean listening to him? Well, I- even in context, when he says things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. If you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, You have to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you listening to him? Or are you listening to the voices of culture? 
You're listening to the value system that we are inundated by with marketing and friendships and community and peer groups and parents that say the way to victory is victory. The way to glory is up. The thing you want to leave your kids is like a stocked bank account, awesome education, great opportunities, cool friendship, and all these, like, this is what, this is what it's about. Like, build the good life, the American version of the good life, and, and pass it on to the next generation. That's when, what else could you ask for? What else would you want? Who said that? Is that what Jesus said? So who are we listening to? I think it's a good question. It's like it's a painful question, to be honest, something I'm wrestling with. Who am I listening to? Whose way am I following? How do I think about glory and meaning and purpose? Through the lens of the world or through the lens of Jesus? Listen to him. In another powerful way, just like right under the surface, in the, in the first century Jewish readers would have picked this up in a second, is this phrase, listen to him, is a clear allusion to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is kind of doing his final sermon. Again, I'll always like love Deuteronomy as this super long sermon because I'm like, look, listen, Peter's in Acts 2, pretty short, right? I get it. Mine are longer than Peter's, but it's not as long as Moses's in Deuteronomy because that's a super long, it's a whole book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon. So I feel all right. Um, and so in this super long sermon that Moses is preaching before the people of Israel are going to go into the promised land, but Moses is not going to go, they are told from God that in the future they will fail. They will blow it. When Moses comes off the mountain in Exodus chapter 34, all the people of Israel are there like, what did God say? And Moses is telling them, and they're like, everything the Lord said we will do. We're going to like do so good. We're going to kill it as this like being faithful to God thing, you know? And, uh, and then and by Deuteronomy, it's like super clear. They're not, they're, they're, they're pattern here is not super great. And, uh, and God says, you're going to turn from my covenant. You're going to forsake my covenant again and again and again. But I'm going to send another one like Moses. I'm going to send another one like Moses. And, and, and the idea is he's going to kind of invite people into a new exodus, like a new out of slavery, a new blood of the lamb, a new through the waters, a new kingdom, a new people. It's going to be like a whole kind of repetition of this story. It's going to be a new Moses. And when people speak, they will listen to him. They will listen to him. And so when God says, this is the one, this is him, the one we've been waiting for, listen to him. He's inviting us on a whole new kingdom mission, a whole new movement, a whole new exodus, a whole new experience of redemption where he will be the sacrificial lamb that sheds his blood. He will be the high priest who welcomes us into the presence of God. He will be the temple that radiates God's presence and mediates God's presence to us. He will be the one that calls us and tells us the way of the kingdom, the way to life, the way to glory. He will be the one who guides us day and night, day and night, day and night. He will be the one. Listen to him. Listen to him. This moment is affirming the identity of Jesus as God's Messiah, the true Son of God, the true representative of God's glory on earth. And the people there, Peter, James, and John are terrified. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came, and I love this. Every time people get really afraid of God, it, it, two things happen again and again. One is, it kind of affirms, when you see the glory of God, as for us, as like mere mortals, the radiance, the glory is so other. It's so holy. It's so different. 
and so beautiful and majestic and pure that there's this sense that we could never draw near to that. And almost every time God comes and draws near, he comes and draws near. It happens here. It happens in places like Isaiah 6. It happens in places like Revelation chapter 1 where they see the glory of Jesus and they fall down like dead man. And he comes and he always says, don't be afraid. Yes, you see my glory. Yes, you see my power. Yes, I have incredible power, but I don't use that to crush people. I use power. I use glory to love people, to forgive people, to heal people, to change people, to reconcile people, to restore people. That's what God uses his power to do. And here again, he comes up to the disciples and he says, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Uh, Pause for one more minute here. Um, in, In the Old Testament, kind of like prophetic vision. When, when the people of Israel are thinking like, what's going to happen? What's going to look like when the Messiah comes? There were different kind of images and expectations that they had from different prophecies that were given. And so one of them is somebody like Moses is going to come. It's going to be a new Moses who leads us on a whole new exodus and gives a kind of instruction and people are going to listen to him. Another kind of idea is that when this messianic figure comes, when this Christ comes, There will be someone who paves the way for him. And the one who paves the way is going to be the prophet Elijah. You can read about this in Malachi chapter 4. That Elijah, who had been a major prophet in Israel's story, who called the people of God to repent and to turn back to God in the face of their rebellion, there would be another one like Elijah that would come. And Elijah would come and prepare the way. And so they're like, okay, if this really is your kingdom, if this really is the kind of kingdom movement, which is blowing our minds right now, if it is, what about the Elijah thing. Like, did we miss that part? I, I, thought, I thought he was supposed to come beforehand and Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong, you read it wrong. He says, yeah, you're right. Elijah was to come. The scribes, the scribes have taught you correctly. He did come. He did come. It was John the Baptist. And you're like, wait, is that reincarnation? It's just saying John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John came in this ministry, like Elijah's ministry, calling people to prepare for the coming kingdom, not by saying, hey, get your stuff cleaned up and, and get everything right and kind of get the weapons ready because the Messiah is going to come and we're going to defeat them. He actually calls people to prepare through repentance, from turning from our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy, turning from our self-exalting kind of efforts to always promote ourselves and defend ourselves and protect ourselves and compare ourselves above others, to stack up society. And this is what had dominated Jewish society is these comparison games where people have this honor-shame mentality where you're just stacking people based on exterior conformity to some cultural kind of rituals and customs, which we do the same thing. We stack people up. We feel better than some and worse than others. And our goal is to climb that ladder in some way to the next status marker. And John's ministry was turned from that. You need mercy just like everybody. You need forgiveness just like everybody. Turn from your sin. Prepare your heart for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, John was that Messiah. But, but, he was handed over. People didn't recognize him. And the leaders did whatever they pleased. And it's going to be the same way with the Son of Man. He's going to suffer at their hands. And again, he's preparing them for what's to come. It's a stunning scene. And Jesus has told them, don't go spreading this news. I want you to see something that's not going to make a ton of sense to you. And it doesn't. 
Like even with this moment, they still don't get it. They're going to be confused for the rest of the story, all the way to the very end when Jesus is like, go make disciples, and still they're going to be scared. Mark's like, and they're still scared. They just don't know what to do. Until the Spirit comes upon them and gives them power outside of themselves, they are just confused and fumbling their way around. And Jesus is saying, this is going to make more sense when you see, but he's preparing them for the path. And I think the, the thing that, as I'm processing this passage this week, what was stunning to me is, that, is just the thought. The way of Christ is not a way uh, that our culture kind of values. It's not, again, uh, promote yourself, do everything you can to advance your career, do everything you can to prove to people your intelligence or your wisdom or your skills, kind of accumulate experiences, accumulate possessions, accumulate whatever it might be, accumulate wealth. It's not like trying to gain more and more influence over people. It's not build this awesome kind of nuclear family. Like all these things that our society is like, this is the thing and this is the thing. We all have our different versions of the thing. We call it here the good life. You have a version of the good life you're aiming for. The, the Jesus version of the good life looks like the cross. And that is hard. It's a hard word. Because what would it look like today to say, today I'm going to follow Jesus by denying myself, grabbing a cross, which means humiliation potentially, it means suffering, it means difficulty, it means challenging, and I'm going to be willing to bear that as I try to lay down my life for the good of others and for the glory of God? What does it look like Monday when you go into the workplace? Say, my goal today isn't like climb the ladder. Is being promoted bad? Nope. And if you're doing a great job and good employers should see people doing a great job and give them increasing influence and opportunity, that's great. Is your agenda kind of climb the ladder to gain influence, to gain money, to gain something else? Or is your agenda to serve humanity with the gifts and the calling that God's given you? Is your agenda to make sure your ideas are valued or will you work to say, who are the ideas of others around me? How do I work to value them? Is your agenda to make sure like you get that moment and you can get in there or is it to actually pay attention to the needs of other people around you? Which is the way of Jesus? According to this, it's self-denial, sacrificial love, it's servant-heartedness. When you go home and you're with your roommates or with your spouse and with your family, what's the goal today? What's mine what do I need? Who's going to take care of me? Or is the goal self-giving, sacrificial love? Like in our culture, we have that quick kind of like caveat. Well, like, well, don't get trampled on. I'm like, I get that. And there are truly toxic environments that are really unhealthy. But like, if you would have said, Jesus, don't get trampled on by the Romans. Like, don't, you know, own your power. You know how Jesus owned his power? By laying down his life for the very people who are crucifying him. That's, that's a hard word. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is the exact imprint of God's glory. This is the way humanity was designed to be. Our world has flipped it upside down. Jesus is trying to show us that the way to true joy, the way to true life, is not the way our culture is telling us. It's not the way. It is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is a way to glory. It is a way to joy. It is a way to eternal life. But it's the way down. There's this passage uh, in this commentary, a little devotional thing. I think we have him back there by N.T. Wright. 
Listen to what it says. I think we'll have it on the screen behind me. In fact, the scene at the transfiguration offers a strange parallel and contrast to the crucifixion. If you're going to meditate on the one, you might like to hold on to the other in your mind as well as a sort of backdrop. Here on, on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they've been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes representing the law and the prophets. There he's flanked by two brigands representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here, a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, darkness comes upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he's hiding in shame after denying he even knows Jesus. Here, a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful son. There, a pagan soldier declares, in surprise, that this really was God's son. In the Christian conception of glory, purpose, meaning, what kind of life is worth, worthy of honor and emulation? It, it is not climb, climb, climb. It is not self-promotion. It is not self-advancement. It's not entitlement. It is self-giving love. It's a willingness to suffer and to serve again and again and again and to empty yourself on behalf of others and for God's glory. And it's something that is rewarded incredibly. Listen to this passage with Peter. All of 2 Corinthians is Peter defending that he is truly an apostle of Jesus, not by claiming all of his stats about all the churches he planted, all the people that came, all the transformation that happened, the, the, the kind of depth of his mission, even these kind of powerful experiences he had with God. He like humbles himself and talks about them in the third person just so people don't think he's awesome. He's like, if you want to know what I want to boast in, I will boast all day long in the things that show my weakness and the, way, and the things that show my inadequacy and the things that show my challenges and my difficulty, my losses and my failures. This is 2 Corinthians 12. Peter says this. If I will go on boasting, I will boast on the things that show my weaknesses. My weaknesses. And then later says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Like, let this go for me, let this go for me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or he says this in chapter 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fading. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Over and over and over again, the whole New Testament testifies that the way of Jesus is a way of servant-hearted, sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying love. It's the way. And that is the way to glory and joy and life. It's a way to actually be a part of something 
that will bring transformation to the world. The kind of messiahs that sought to build their own kingdom through power are all dead and gone. The messiah who laid down his life in self-giving love for the sake of other people being reconciled to God has built a kingdom that has transcended generation after generation, culture after culture, people group after people group for 2,000 years, so that today we worship here a messiah who is crucified on a Roman cross. That's crazy. We will celebrate in a moment the centerpiece of our gathering, which is a celebration of his body being broken and his blood being poured out as an expression of love to all of us and all who would turn to him. This is the Christ. This is the beloved son of God, and God is pleased with him. And what he's invited us to is to turn to him. And when we turn to him and we find our identity in him, we experience that declaration over us as well, that we become the beloved children of God, quite apart from our rebellion, quite apart from our mistakes and our wandering and all the ways we fall short of God's glory. He loves us in Christ because Christ laid down his life to forgive us, to cleanse us, to wash us, and to secure us in a new kind of relationship as a new covenant people that experience the presence of God. I want to read this from a little prayer book called The Valley of Vision to close. The Valley of Vision is a little Puritan prayer book. I think we have them on our shelf. Uh, we might have sold them in the first service. But this is the kind of uh, the opening prayer in this book. We'll have it on the screen behind me. Listen to this paradox. The Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you now uh, to pour out grace on us as a people. Uh, we need your spirit to help us have eyes to see uh, the glory of the cross, the greatness of servanthood, the power of self-giving love. Uh, we need your help. Uh, we acknowledge that everything around us in our cultures is pulling us in a different direction. So would you liberate us from the tyranny of these deceptive ideas about what makes life meaningful? And would you free us to trust in Jesus, to listen to him and to follow him as humble servants, as loving people, forgiving people, as humble people, as weak people, And would you, through our humility, through our weakness, through our limitations, accomplish more than we could ever imagine? Would you put a picture of Jesus on display that would bring transformation to the world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Part Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.